Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Graham Lord, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thanks, it's great to be here. Oh, look. Uh, so fantastic. formal. It so is. formal. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, it's great Everyone's to be on here. their best behavior. <laughs> How are you, mate? Yeah, really good. Really good. We've had a, a great weekend down here at the Ocean Lovers Festival. So that's been fantastic getting to meet everybody and listen to lots of different people's opinions on the plastic pollution issue. You don't usually do this. Oh, definitely not. No, no, no. My focus is cleaning up, you yeah. know, like that, that's our main goal with what I do is doing the remote cleanup. So yeah, definitely stepping outside the comfort zone this weekend, but it's been great. We're down in Bondi Beach at the moment for the Ocean Plastic Action Forum, which happened. what do you think, Graham? Yeah, I think it was fantastic. It was just great to meet everybody and listen to their viewpoints and to get the opportunity to speak to the scientists and the people that are working in different areas so we can work out how we as Sea Shepherd are out doing the direct action, collecting this can work together. So, you know, we've had really good conversations with Denise from CSIRO and we're going to do some work now with her and UNSW, we're going to collect some samples for them just to make sure that we can have the massive impact when we go to these locations. Look, I know you well enough to know that you were outside of your comfort zone, but mate, you're a champion up there. You're a panelist. You're, people were really interested to hear from you because you're on the front line. Let's face it. Sure, there's people that go and do beach cleanups on a day-to-day basis, but you're in charge of, of, of whole crews. You go to remote locations. The scientists, the politicians, everyone was looking up to you and, and, and were wanting to hear what you, you had to say. How did you find that? I found it really good, you know, like just to finish talking when we were talking and then everybody started applauding and you're going, yeah, no, this was really, you know, something worthwhile and people do want to hear what we're doing because I think by putting everybody together, we're getting it from start to end, you know, so we've got people trying to minimize plastic and use of plastic and solutions. Then we've got us that are out on the beaches cleaning it, whether it be in community with our community clean program or whether it be on these remotes. And I I think that was really evident. People were interested to hear us. And I guess our thoughts on how we see it affecting people. And I briefly touched on how I believe it mentally affects the traditional owners to see this on their country. And I think that's a really important part of the conversation that we don't see because we live away from these areas that are massively impacted where they're living with it day to day. Can we talk about that for a sec? Because a lot of people think plastic pollution, they think about the ecological impacts. And more recently, there's a little bit of focus on the human health impacts in terms of the impacts of plastic ingestion. But you're going to these remote locations and organizing and coordinating cleanups. And you touched on that. So 
Can you give people an idea of, of what that is like? What are the impacts that you're seeing on these remote Indigenous communities of that plastic pollution? Yeah, we're asking them that question. It's saying that, you know, we're during the cleanup, we're with the rangers and we're speaking to Timmy Barawanga, who's the general manager for Dimaru Aboriginal Corporation. And we're speaking to him and saying, you know, how does this affect you personally to come here and see this on your country? You live here, he lives locally. And just to see it and talk to the rangers and see it's actually hurting them. You can Mm. see it when you're talking to them, they feel uncomfortable. And, you know, I think his description about it being like a new virus coming to kill the animals and kill the nature was just a perfect description of how they feel because they want to be out at their traditional hunting. But now, you know, what are they eating? What are they consuming? There's not that animal life that was once there for them to use. Just seeing it in their expressions and talking to them, you can see they're sad. And we've seen that in the other locations. You know, I even remember years ago going over to Mulgumpin. Sorry, where's Mulgumpin? uh, Which is Morton Island in Morton Bay. And we spoke to Uncle Ian Delaney, who's a Quandamokan elder, and we're talking to him. And he said from his perspective, it's the fish are eating the plastic. And then, you know, when they go to eat the fish, are they eating it? You know, they're seeing a change in what they've been able to fish with. And that was again reflected when we went to Anandiliakwa and the Groot Archipelago, talking to the ranger coordinator, Kirsten for Umbacumba. And I asked her and she said, yeah, driving down when they go out onto the beaches, they don't know what they're going to find, but driving down the beaches and when her and the traditional line of rangers see the plastic debris everywhere, it affects them physically and that just feels sad because they're going, well, we're out here again doing this and where does it come from? I guess that's a big point and who's responsible and that's, you know, part of what we want to highlight that these plastic producers that are making millions of dollars out of making these products, they're not considering the end of life of them. They're just getting the money for the product and then leaving it up to remote communities who don't have any infrastructure to deal with it. It it shouldn't be their problem at all, but yet they're the ones dealing with it. And that's why they, it seems they have a real feeling of hopelessness around that. And, And that's why they love us coming there, you know, to show that someone does care. Brad picked up on it and so did I, your mental well-being. We talk about environmental depression. We're sitting here in a nice place in Bondi. Imagine if it was your home, your backyard that was filled up every single day with debris coming from all around the world. It's not like it's an urbanised area and it's coming off the city. It would make you bloody depressed. Of course. And it's something yeah. that I, Graham, up until he said it, I, I never really considered mm. that of the remote communities, of the Indigenous communities. That's their land. You know, we're the ones obviously polluting it. So it's an interesting point of view. And have you seen... Their mental, I mean, because you've doing this for how long now, Graham? Yeah, since 2018, we've been going to Jewel Pan, So, we- Have you seen their mental well-being go down even further? Is it a trend or is it just your last trip? What can you tell yeah, us? Yeah, I, I definitely think that it's affecting them more and more as it on goes. You know, at Dimaru, they've been, you know, working on marine debris for over 20 years before we ever got involved. They've been fighting this issue there and, and feeling, I guess, very lonely because what Timmy was saying was they don't know where it's coming from. They don't know who's responsible and no one can give them the answers to how they can stop it. You know, so it is that feeling of hopelessness and, and you know, from our perspective, we just want to get in there and help highlight the problem and work with them and say, you know, people do care. And one of the points that's often raised, if it was Bondi or Surface Paradise, 
the problem would be getting addressed today. It wouldn't be just left there, but because it's in a remote location, it's sort of, you know, it is the away where all this rubbish goes and nothing really is done about it. You know, the government is looking at it with a ghost net initiative. So there, there's a lot of money being spent in that area at the moment about getting the extent of the problem, which will help with the solutions. But I think, you know, these people that are making the money could be doing something now. You know, they can't just say it's just Australians littering. It's not. It's their product that's designed poorly and there's just no, you know, they've got no concern about what happens to their product once they've been paid for it. Let's talk about these locations you're going to. So you're Sea Shepherd Australia's remote marine debris campaigner. So you're organising and coordinating and, and going to these away remote locations and you've done a, quite a few in the last, I believe, 12 months in particular. And we've got to recognise that Graham's in rare air as well. He's a, this is his third appearance on the Ocean Protect podcast. He's a, he's a long-time listener. <laughs> Does that put him in royalty? It's, it's rare air. I think I think there's only one or two others. I, can, I can't think of them, who they are off the top of my head. Denise, maybe? Denise, I be, uh, Denise is two. I think Laura Wells has come on three times, I believe. Mate, um, you're in, you're he's in. a superstar. Look, and and look, and I, I made this point yesterday as well. Like uh, every time I say meet uh, C. Graham or the other Sea Shepherd Australia uh, legends, I, I tell them that the work that you guys do is incredible. You get basically no funding, uh, very little budget, and you achieve incredible results. Is well, hands down the the most effective marine conservation group in the world. That's a big call, and it's well deserved. So Graham's leading the charge on these remote uh, cleanup activities in faraway lands. And obviously, you know, with, apart from you and your crew, people don't get to see what's happening at these locations. So can you give us an idea of, I guess, number one, where you're going, but also number two, what are you seeing and doing in these locations? Yeah, and from, and from where to go, like meaning, you know, you wake up, I want to know, you know, where you're going, you wake up at your house, what do you do? Give us a full description mm. for the listeners because they, we've spoken off mic, we know what you do, but we'd love for you to share, share mm. your story. Yeah, I guess to start off with, you know, we work in with whoever we can, you know, like a a big focus is on the Gulf of Carpentaria that we're looking up that. So I'm working with the team from the GhostNet initiative from the government team, just finding where they think locations are we can come. You know, as Brad mentioned, we try and keep the cost to a minimum. So rather than going and spending money on us going and having a look there, why not talk to the people that are already there and funding these Indigenous ranger programs? And it's something that I'm super passionate about is getting to work on country with Indigenous rangers. So, you know, I reach out to the GhostNet team and say, you know, are there any locations we could look at? And this year, for example, one of the suggestions was Mapoon, which is a remote location on the Gulf of Carpentaria on the Queensland side. So we're going there next Sunday or this coming Sunday in two days. Um, we're heading up to there, you know, to help clean Flinders Beach, which which is a really important turtle nesting site, a 24-kilometre beach that's never been cleaned. They, they have the resources to do the turtle monitoring program, which is awesome, but they just, you know, there's just not enough time for them to clean this beach. So to be able to offer that we'll come up and help them, it means a lot to everybody. It helps highlight the problem, you know, and once we've decided on a location, it's just working the logistics with the rangers so that we're not impacting on their day-to-day operations and putting out uh, an expression of interest to our volunteers to see who wants to come. And then we pick a team of, you know, a diverse team of people that are super pumped to get the opportunity to go and work with them. And just people. on that, so when you send out like a, uh, <laughs> is it just like a mailing list? Hey guys, I'm going up to this location next Sunday. Um, who's keen? And then 
Like, what, what's your response rate like? <laughs> yeah, um, it goes out to all our active volunteers, so all the onshore volunteers, the people that are raising money to pay for these campaigns, you know, whether it be our illegal fishing campaign, our threatened species campaign or the marine debris campaign, you know, they're the ones that you see when you walk past a stall and they're selling Sea Shepherd t-shirts, which is, you know, our key way of raising money and our direct action supporters. That They're the guys that are doing the groundwork. So it's open to people across all the Sea Shepherd Australia chapters um, to apply and we get a really good, solid response. And, you know, they're donating from one to two and a half weeks of their time to come away with us. And then, yeah, we put the team together and we head off into the blue and I guess everybody, you know, works as hard as possible. It's long days in the hot sun. Um, we try and get out as much as we can to have a bigger impact while we're there. So we arrive and we hit the ground running, you know, as soon as we're there, we're off, you know. And I think who, who, who pays for that? It all comes from our donors. Yeah. So so Sea Shepherd Australia pay for them at, for it thanks to the support of our donors and people, you know, supporting the work that we do, which, you know, we're endlessly grateful for all those people that are out supporting us. And so just to clarify, that's just individual people, like yeah. just putting their hand in their pocket and going, here's some cash, keep the great work. It's not like Coca-Cola or uh, Nestle saying, no, hey, well, we wouldn't hey. touch them with a six-foot pole. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'll get to that, but uh, they're not, no one's writing you like million-dollar checks, are they, uh, from a big organisation. So it's, Yeah. Hundred percent. It's all it's all groundswell uh, people that are supporting us. You know, it's mm. the mums and Amazing. dads, kids. You know, there, there's kids that donate money, that raise money through their schools and donate it to us. There's hundreds of great stories that the fundraising team would come across where you know just kids are out there trying to raise money. You know, they've seen some of our clips or they've heard about us and just want to support us. And and that's I guess the base of our supporters. Mm. So and, and look, I've had the good fortune of joining your crews on a couple of cleanups, like there was one at Southport and there was one obviously at Morton Island. You ne- you'll never meet a nicer bunch of people. Like even if you don't care about plastic pollution or whatever and just want to hang around with some really nice people, they couldn't be more welcoming, friendly, and that's just so giving of their time. Like we went over to, in that case, uh, Morton Island for a day. We caught a ferry very early in the morning, didn't get back till late. And we we're, you know, picking up trash basically, like little bits of styrofoam all day. And you'd think that sucks. It was so enjoyable. And I mean that genuinely, like just by virtue of the hanging around all these wonderful, benevolent people. I know. I think that for me, that's a, that's a big thing. You know, part of the reason I got in it was I have three daughters and I wanted to do something to make sure that they have a good future, but also the positivity of being surrounded by people that care about protecting the planet and our oceans and our marine life. And it, and it is super positive when you're out there with these people. And a lot of these people are professionals. Of police that come away with us, firemen, scientists, data analysts, people from a really diverse background that are volunteering their time to come away. So it's, you know, I've got a zero waster coming away on this one. So there's people well, sorry, from the yachting community, people that are trying to minimize their impact on earth. Oh, okay. I've never, um, I've never heard that term. So, you know, and it's really cool. You get to spend the time and we get to talk between ourselves and come up with solutions for ourselves. Mm. But talking to the rangers, it's so cool. It's, it's the best ever being able to work with these rangers and learn about country and, and just see how they interact with country and sort of reflect on what we do and say, you know what, they've got it right. You know, we've sometimes got it wrong. But it's not all sunshine and unicorns, is it, Graham? It's hard yakka. Like you're literally basically on a remote beach, which sounds really cool and exotic, but it's hot blazing sun all day picking up trash and I guess embedded fishing nets, et cetera. What's that like? 
Everybody's pretty good. We're pretty adverse to it, but it can be heart-wrenching if you go out there, especially when you go on the first, you know, see the beach, like when we went back to Julepan in October of last year. And we sort of thought, oh, yeah, we haven't been here for two years. There'll be a bit of trash out there, but, you know, we'll get through those first couple of Ks and then continue on from where we've been. And we sort of walked out and it was just this colourful sea of plastic. And it's just, oh, my God, we better just get stuck into it. You know, you're just going. It's wow. it's just, yeah, you sort of heart drops and go, you know what? We're here to do a job. The young people are living with this every day, so let's just get out and do what we can for those people and to make the ocean a safer place for both the marine wildlife and the bird life, you know, and and you find remnants of deceased animals caught in these ghost nets. You know, you come across some things that you don't want to see, but at the end of the day, the big thing I say to the volunteers is we just have to go out there and make it as fun as possible. And just push through the heat, you know, um, dehydration and everything's a big thing um, in that sun all day because uh, on a lot of these beaches there is no shelter. It's just the sun for maybe 10 hours at a time um, and then you have to back up, you know, in Jewel Palm we're camping on the beach. So no water, no showers, no electricity and basic camp food. So there's definitely no luxuries but the camaraderie with working you know, together and pulling together with these ranges is what pulls everybody through and inspires them. Can we just talk about method? So you, you get there, you see colourful plastic everywhere, your heart drops, you think, shit, we've just got to get in there and get stuck in. What's your method? I mean, do you start at one end, get the big stuff first. Can you talk us through how you attack a beach from from that point of view? Yeah, we sort of have different goals for different beaches, like with Julepan in particular, it's a beach where we've been doing a survey since we've gone there. So we survey 500 metres. So we arrive, we mark off our 500 metre survey site to be cleaned. And then we just go to, you know, because that was like 250 metres in from the start of the beach where that zone starts. And then we just literally make a straight line and start cleaning the beach and picking it all up by hand. You're talking about from shoreline inland? Yep. So you'd go 500 metres inland? 250 metres along the beach. So from the start of the beach where the rocks are, for instance, there, yeah, yeah. we go 250 metres because we have this 500 metre survey site we do every year. Yeah. And then we just, yeah, we then go from the water to the vegetated zone. Okay. And push it, yeah, right yeah, through. Okay. And, and clean. you pick and litter up by hand, obviously, and often depending on the nature of it, like if it's fishing nets, I'm guessing there's a team of you wrenching it out and then trying to put it in the back of a truck or something like that. And the little smaller stuff, you're packing in smaller bags and ultimately just compiling it all into larger bags. And then where does that material go after you've picked it all up? Yeah, all the material that's collected, we put it all together. Um, We actually have a a big truck that Dimaru bring out for the cleanup, like just think a tip truck. So we load it all into a space and then the truck comes in, we load the truck and it all goes to landfill because it's contaminated. There is no facilities to do any sort of recycling in these locations, you know, even recycling the basics is a challenge, you know, like your aluminium cans and bottles locally is a challenge there. So it's basically all going to landfill, but our goal is to remove it off the beach, reduce the loading. So in that instance, the turtles can come back, which we've seen, you know, that was one of the big success stories of our first clean in 2018. And there was a few turtle nests, but not many. But when we went back in 2019, it was like a turtle highway. So that was inspiring for the volunteers to see that by reducing the load, 
the turtles had been able to return. And that's our goal is to get it back to a, a state that, you know, the marine life can return and life can return to these once pristine areas. That's cool. That is cool. You know, like for, to, to be able to see that's almost like did someone plant those turtles there? For those people going out there to see that firsthand, what we've mm-hmm. done is allowing these turtles to come back to their own habitat. That's why you do it. 100%. Yeah, you know, that's shivers up my spine when I hear mm-hmm. that. I mean... But often when you do return, obviously you, you're often going to the same location several times over the course of several years. I'm guessing a lot of the plastic just is back there again, ready to be cleaned up again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, with all of our cleanups, we're looking for long-term partnerships when we start working mm. in these locations. You know, last year we added Anandili Aquas in the Groot Archipelago to the remotes we're doing. So we did a clean up with the ranges there, starting with our annual cleanup Groot Island Day, which is a community initiative for everybody to participate. So we all go out where I think we had about 120 people join us and cleaned up the beach there. And then, you know, we'll go back every year. So the idea is to continually reduce the load while collecting the data. And then over time, the load will become lighter and lighter. We'll still have to maintain it, but it's much easier to maintain once we've done that spot, you know, which we've seen at Jewel Pan, we reduced the loading. The problem was that we had the two-year COVID interruption. So we had gone to reducing that loading. And then, you know, the horrific part of us, I guess, with Jewel Pan in particular, was that we went back and we removed 10 and a half tonne over two weeks from 4.5K, you know, and we're removing some of this with shovels, which is just gut-wrenching. Shovels. 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 So no longer on our hands and knees, but when we were there in 2018 for the first time when the beach hadn't been cleaned for seven years, we got seven tonne from the same area. So more has returned in two years than had accumulated in seven years. And that's the shocking reality of consumer and single-use plastic. Have you got a feel as to why that increase in load at that particular location? Yeah, just plastic production going through the roof, population increases. We've seen, you know, the introduction of single-use sachets, which are sold or pushed into poorer countries that are developing, you know, as an option for them to use shampoo and a lot of the stuff. We've got these tiny sachets are multi-layered, so made of several materials, so basically impossible to recycle. And they're just now starting to litter the beach, which is a new problem of even smaller plastics than what we've seen before. You've been pretty experienced at it. When you get to these type of beaches, you can look down. Can you quickly identify your own eyes? Hey, that's come from Indonesia. That, you know, Can you analyze what country it's come from just from looking at it? Yeah, a lot of the time we can. We go and we work on doing a brand audit and look and it's the, you know, Procter Gamble's, the Danone's, the Coca-Cola's, those sort of companies. And these are global Western companies. And although the packaging a lot of the time is coming across with Asian writing on it, it's actually made by Western companies. You know, so that's a big misunderstanding where people say a lot of this is Asian waste. Yeah, maybe coming there, but Australia... We send our waste overseas. We don't want to deal with it here, which is so wrong that we send it to these poorer countries and they have no facilities. And then people must know that when we send it away and we just go, oh, yeah, it's away. Here's a poor country. You have it. And then we go, yeah, they do a real crap job at, you know, waste treatment where it's us sending it there. That's the irony of it's it It's our all, problem. Isn't it? You know, we're, we're, we're sending it all up there and then complaining that all this stuff's coming down from Indo and Asia and hitting our shorelines in in northern Australia. It's like, well, what do you expect sending waste to countries that don't actually have recycling centres or anything? And then for us to be on our high horse in Australia going, oh, but it's it's not our problem, it comes Mm. from them. It is our problem. 
100%. Is our problem. Just going back to, you know, the, the, the methodology behind it, from you collect that all, but you don't have time to sit up there and sort it. You don't have time to, to look through it all. You just send that straight to landfill. I'd imagine you'd want to sort through it if you had the time, if you had the manpower, but that's just something you guys can't accomplish in that time. Yeah, uh, we with the 500-metre survey, we count everything. Ev- count down to every Every single bit, you know. So this is so maybe you, two tonne. After you've busted your butt all day picking trash up, you got to go back to the uh, central facility and then identify one by one, yep. sort them all out. Yep. So we break wow. it all down into every category, you know, and it's different for each location, but talking about dual pan, it's, it's 500 meters that we, that we sort and count. So that might take three days, wow. you know, and we might swap. We might have half the team counting, half the team on the beach, then swap over because it is, it's yeah. quite, quite, uh, tiring sitting there counting. I can imagine. 1,000, <laughs> 2,000, 3,000 pieces of hard plastic, <laughs> you know, like a lot of it is, you know, hard plastic or bottle caps or thongs or lighters or squid jiggies or different remnants. So you're counting thousands and thousands of these. So, you know, in that areas like that on Annandilly Aqua, we sorted 10% every day. So every day we'd go out on the beach and collect it. You know, at a lot of these locations, we're removing up to a ton a day. So that could be a hundred kilos of rubbish that we're sorting through when we get back at the end of the day, every day for the duration to get those sort of statistics to, you know, help create awareness. We're now working in more and more closer with CSIRO and they're going to supply us some tools so we can make sure we're sticking with their methodology for collecting data and just refining the way we do it and being able to supply them as our Institute of Science the data and say, hey, this is what we get from remotes. What can we do about it? You know, and I think that partnership is something that was, you know, incredible that came out of yesterday. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah. Let's just put this into perspective, guys and girls. Plastic's light. When you talk about getting 100 kg of plastic and sorting through that or getting a ton a day, that's a huge mass of plastic. Am I right? Yeah, it is. It's huge and it's lightweight. You know, some of this stuff's polystyrene or it's tiny macro and micro bits of plastic, you know, so it it is a lot. You know, you get about maybe seven kilos per bag is around wow. the average. So one of those collection bags we have has about seven kilo. They're so big you, bags. They're big bags. Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're sorting, you know, maybe 15 of those 
every day for the duration, you know, and, and the volunteers just tackle it. You know, they're, they're fantastic. You know, Sea Shepherd is a volunteer organization and they just crack into it, you know. I don't know how they do it, given that they'll, they'll be protein deficient, wouldn't they, on their plant-based diet? Oh, they, they are all vegan. We're all on a plant-based diet when we're on campaign, but you don't have to be plant-based to be part of Sea Shepherd. No, it's just, no, no judgment. We, we believe that, you know, when we're away, you can't eat animals if you're trying to save them. But we have people that join us that, that aren't plant-based, but when we're away, we're all plant-based, you know, and that's, that's a massive part of it to everybody too. Clearly I'm being facetious, uh, but uh, hashtag plant power, but uh, I'm keen to talk about this data. Like, so what are the standouts? Like you're categorizing these uh, individual plastic pieces. What's the key plastic items you're seeing? In the remote communities, it's definitely the hard bits and pieces of what's left over of consumer plastics and bottle lids. They're just insane. But the sad part is if we're finding the lid, where's the rest of the bottle? Mm, of course. What's well, in the ocean broken up into more pieces, you know, so it was one piece, it's now a thousand pieces. And that's still in the ocean somewhere because we're not finding, you know, we do find a lot of bottles, but when you find the bottle, the lid's attached. Mm. So I think the lids were number two or number three on the items we found there. Mm. And lighters, it's anything that can float, you know, so you're finding, I guess, what's carried on the currents. But what I always think about, what about all the stuff that sunk? Mm. Where's that? You yeah. know, like there's so much that is under the ocean or in the ocean still, you know, we're only scratching the surface on what we remove. Mm. And we we just see this as a way of reducing the load. Cleanup isn't the solution. The solution is to attack it at source and prevent it by with stormwater preventing that transfer of pollution from land to sea. So, you know, it's a multi-pronged approach. So if we can get maintain gross pollutant traps in stormwater in developed countries like Australia mm-hmm. to prevent that getting out there and then attack, you know, the producers and hold them responsible and the true cost. If they paid the true cost of cleanup or even come and spent a week picking up, they would then reconsider and come up with smarter designs, you know, because that's what we need. We need smarter designs by companies that actually care. Has that happened? Like the people from Coca-Cola, Nestle, et cetera, have they ever come knocking on your door saying, hey, Graham, we'd love to come and do one of these cleanups with you? Yeah, no. <laughs> um, and, it's, and, it's, and it's just, you know, it's literally hard work. And I think as people, as humans, I think people care. And I think if they've seen it, but from commercially, they're there to make money and that is their goal and that's what they're cared about. They're not cared about the impact. And where they're, you know, we are a marine conservation organisation. We're there for the animals. They're our clients. We want to save the whales, the turtles. That's what we want to do. We just had um, Denise on the podcast and she shared some interesting facts that I'll share with you now. Brad will help me out. It's a report. It's not peer-reviewed yet, but they're working through it. And from the data that they're seeing, they're saying somewhere in the vicinity of 90, 91, 92% of the plastic pollution actually comes back to shore. Now, I don't see how that is possible up in your locations because what you're seeing is coming down from remote locations, coming down from Asia. But how does it make you feel when reports are coming out like that, that that, that 90 plus percent of what you see in Australia, for instance, is actually coming back to shore, meaning that there's only 8% actually at the ocean floor? What do you think of that stat? Well, I think it'd be fantastic because it'd be heaps <laughs> easier to remove, you know, yeah, it's going to be better for the Asians. We're not, not going to see whales eating it because our, our goal at Sea Shepherd Australia is to put ourselves out of work and solve the plastic crisis by working in conjunction with everybody, you know, 
we're here to end it. We just want to see plastic pollution solved and then we can move on to saving animals in another form. You know, like we're not here for anything else other than the animals. So that is our big thing. And if 92% of it is making its way to shore and if we can run our community cleanup program and remove that and run these remotes and make it better, then so be it. Let's work together to end this. What are the key actions that you'd like to see implement that are currently not happening? I think we're heading in the right direction. You know, people are getting involved, people are concerned and they're getting involved with these single-use plastic bans. But, you know, banning a bag and just giving out a thicker one is just ridiculous. Like whoever come up with that idea needs a clip around the ears. So it's just like, why have we even had this intermediate step and not, you know, introducing everything nationally, doing it state-based so that we can move our bags from state to state progressively as that comes. And the container deposit scheme, you know, like it's a great scheme, works well, but I would rather see a reduction in single-use plastic bottles rather than being recycled. I want to see them gone. I want to see people reusing it, using the public facilities where we can go and fill up our water bottles. You know, we have good water in this country. We can go to any tap and fill up our water bottles. So I don't know why we even need to have a lot of these products, why we can't just move to reusable options. And I would love to see reusables, refillable stations in all the supermarkets, starting to see that become more and more widespread at a reasonable price for people to afford. So, you know, that we can afford it as everyday parents with families. We don't have the options to go to bulk food stores, but if we diverted money away from the fossil fuel industry and subsidizing that and put it back into, you know, making food, healthy food, affordable for real Australians, then we would see the change in the health. People would move to healthier diets, but at the moment it's just cheaper to eat junk. They want to support the fossil fuel industry and throw the money at that. Well, give the money to people that want food, want healthy food. Touched on consumerism. That was spoken a little bit about that at the Ocean Lovers Festival. You're right. You know, people have been, uh, well, big companies have pushed their product on us. We made the choice. I mean, if we go back 15, 20 years ago when the pump bottle first came out, you could go to your petrol station, put $5 worth of gas in your car, which would last you a week, and you, you get a bottle of water and, and you go, geez, why, why did we get bottled water? I, I lived in Christchurch, which was pre-earthquake, some of the best water in the world. But that was pushed upon us. And, and now you go to a petrol station now and you've, there's a whole fridge full of different types of water. I do think the responsibility um, is borne by both the consumer and the producer. I don't think we can point the finger solely at the producer. I think we need to take responsibility for our own actions as well. Interested to hear your thoughts, Brad, and, and Graham on that one? Oh, look, for sure. But there's already a fair bit of attention trying to educate the consumer to make better choices. But it is often hard. We just ordered Uber Eats yeah. because we were doing podcasts here for the day. Yeah. We, we didn't have time to go out. Mm. It all arrived in plastic. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's very difficult. It, it, it's the solutions need to be simple and convenient almost without thinking because it, it is difficult. Fundamentally, though, the, pro- the producers of these plastic items are not being held in any way accountable for the impact that they're having and the cost of the cleanup activities that other people are doing. They make a dollar when they produce the item and they just keep on doing that. And why would they bother? Graham was saying, oh, they don't care and they don't come to our cleanups. Why would they care if it's not affecting their bottom line? But I tell you what, if it did, they'd be there with 
dry shirts and bags cleaning up all their own crap, but fundamentally they're not. I'd love to see something something like a plastic tax or something to basically reflect the fact, hey, when we pr- produce this plastic, there is a cost associated An with it. cost. And that could fund potentially uh, treatment, recycling, educational, cleanup activities, whatever. Um, that and, would be why, a real and, and why won't that happen? Well, the, the point was- big business, yeah. mate, because Coca-Cola probably, and sorry, Coke, I'll keep talking about you, probably pay a gazillion dollars to the Australian government in tax. Yeah. Their voice is a lot louder than oh. ours. And we and that was confirmed by the politicians yesterday. The person who shouts loudest wins. I don't think it's the person who shouts loudest. Well, I mean, I'm, I think, not, I'm not saying I agree with I, that, but that's what the politicians said yesterday. I, I'd suggest your voice gets exponentially louder when you've got a, a gazillion dollars that you can you know, wield that power and influence uh, and potentially even select the political leaders of this country. Like the, the, the only reason why we still allow smoking in this country, the only reason why we still allow plastic produced en masse and sold, the only tax. reason why we have a whole bunch of stuff wrapped in plastic at Coles and Woolies and plastic bottles, et cetera, is because the plastic producers are making a, a lot of money out of it. Jeremy touched on this before. This problem is actually a relatively new problem. We didn't have pump water uh, at the gas station. We didn't have 20,000 different types of plastic drinks we can consume. But that for me is a real opportunity. We can go back to what we did previously no without, without any loss of quality of life. In fact, quality of life would increase dramatically. We know. Well, Graham wouldn't be so busy, number one. (laughs) (laughs) He'd have a little bit more time to spare. And I want to touch on this, actually. The time that Graham spends doing these remote brewing uh, cleanups, in his spare time, can you get this, Jeremy? So Graham is one of the fortunate individuals at Sea Shepherd Australia that get paid a a, a wage. And it has to be said, Graham, you could make a lot more money doing uh, other stuff. I'm sure your wife can attest to. I think you were telling me the other day (laughs) you took a 50% pay cut to take on your dream job at uh, Sea Shepherd Australia, which is very noble. But in your spare time, you organize local cleanups. (laughs) This is amazing. And for me, like you're one guy that would very much deserve a well-earned break when they get back from cleaning up remote locations. Queenslander of the year. <laughs> Queenslander. <laughs> but instead, he spends his weekend organising local cleanups around Gold Coast, Brisbane, et cetera. Total, total respect. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. You know, one of my core beliefs as being a Sea Shepherd Australia staff member is that, you know, I didn't change from being a volunteer. Mm. You know, I'm still a volunteer. Mm. I still have two voluntary roles. I'm still out volunteering on the weekend with everybody else. And I think that's really important, whether you're in a leadership role within a company or wherever you are, to be out with, you know, your staff if it's in a company, but to be out with the other volunteers so they can see that you are just like them and they can work their way through to these sort of positions and have the opportunity, the fortunate opportunity like I do to work for Sea Shepherd Australia. But yeah, still running the Gold Coast cleanups. Um, had one two weeks ago, coordinated another localised remote as a state coordinator for our marine debris campaign. And we went out into the beautiful Moreton Bay with the Blue Peters Sailing School and had the opportunity to be supported by Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service and clean up mud in St Helena's Island. And we went out for the week. We're sailing for the weekend, sailing out there. And, you know, again, you know, massive area for dugongs, turtles, humpback highway. And we removed 500 kilos just in one weekend for, from what is described by the Queensland government as one of the most pristine locations in Queensland. But 10 volunteers can remove 500 
kilo in in probably 12 hours of collecting in between sailing times. But we are in a privileged position in this country to be able to do that. That's the way I look at things. We do cast aspersions at people in other countries when we see stuff coming here, but we are in such a privileged position to be able to utilize our spare time for the betterment of of people and to fight for causes that we love and to hopefully make a better future for our children. The modest man that is you for the listener, you've taken a 50% pay cut. You go out and you spend Monday to Friday doing beach cleanups, organizing remote areas, and and Monday to Friday, 12-hour days, you know, longer. And then in the weekend, you want to come home, put your feet up. No, first thing Saturday morning, (laughs) you're off again. I mean, mate, I'm just in awe. I really am. And so should be all our listeners um, and and as Brad is. I don't do that. Brad doesn't do that. You know, we really take your hats off to you and all the other volunteers because I'm sure most of them are the same mm, as you. Mm. Yeah, hundred percent. What, what keeps it, you going, buddy? Well, it definitely is, and and like you mentioned, there's a whole team of us at Sea Shepherd Australia, and everybody's in a similar position. We're all working together to fight for a common cause with marine conservation, and there's lots of us that are volunteers. You know, it can be disheartening from time to time when people comment about people being paid for Sea Shepherd, but the reality is we are doing it all as a passion job. We're all super passionate. About about our jobs and being able to be in this privileged position to work for Sea Shepherd Australia to fight for the animals. I just love it. I'm lucky to have a super supportive family and a very patient wife. Shout out to the family. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that keep everything going at home while I get out there and do the job and, and work on. It's all about educating and inspiring. I was lucky enough to be invited to speak at one of the local state schools at Polara School yesterday to speak to 125 grade sixes. And, you know, like it's a bit confronting. It's probably more challenging than getting up at the Ocean Lovers Festival working with kids, but it's fun, you know, and they're the future generation. And, and I sort of, you know, as much as you might shit yourself before you get up in front of them all, you know, it is good fun. And you see, you see, their faces light up and you, you're working through and we did a nurdle hunt, which is the building block of the plastic industry. You know, you get these tiny nurdles, size of a lentil and 600 of them to make a single water bottle. So, you know, we put them in the sandpit and got the kids out there sieving so they can see, you know, we have a nurdle hunt that's happening across this month at Sea Shepherd Australia and um, saying, hey kids, this is, you know, and they just loved it. They want to get hands on there. These kids are heaps smarter than us, you know, they're, they're all out mm. there and they, they want their future to be bright as we saw by some of the youth at the event yesterday, they were asking, you know, tough questions. Mm. They were. And I, we, we touched on that with Denise in the last podcast, the politician's reaction to that young girl. I mean, you were there. What were your thoughts on that when she said, look, you just got to shout louder? Yeah, I think that was crap. Um, <laughs> I really think, you know, politicians are supposed to be there as a voice of the people. And I know yeah. a yeah. lot of them are doing the best they can, but to tell a young person that they need to shout louder is not acceptable. The adults are the ones that created this problem. We need to be the ones that are solving it and not saying, oh yeah, I'm getting on a bit. Let's leave it to the kids. I'm going to have a lay in and not do anything today. And my kids can deal with the plastic pollution problem that we created because it, you, you well, know. We're allowed to be creative. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a relatively new issue and it, and it shouldn't be up to my children to worry about it. We should be able to work together as adults and work with politicians and other organisations to work together to solve this problem. You talk about work together, but one thing that I like about Sea Shepherd Australia is that direct action. I mean, there's a history of basically ramming whaling ships, which I think is like the coolest thing around, basically. 
And Jeremy asked the question around consumers. Is it a consumer problem? Is it a production problem? I'm keen to hear your insights from the production perspective. You know, what direct action would you like to see happen or maybe even drive to see happen in this space, particularly in relation to the producers? I'd like to see the government step up and mandate it for some sort of tax for plastic pollution and to go towards cleanup because I am 100% positive that if they were paying the cost of cleanup, they would come up with smarter designs. We could invest in new technologies that would be better options. And I strongly advocate for reusable as the number one. It's done in other countries. It's done in areas here. Why can't we do it? You know, I really think if it was something that cost them money, design would be much better. And I think design is, you know, one of the key ways out of this. I was uh, just thinking back before, you know, obviously you've got three daughters, very dedicated family. Geez, I'd hate it if you were my dad. Imagine, <laughs> what are we doing the weekend, Dad? Uh, we're going up to here. Do, do the kids come along and help? Yeah, 100%. The kids <laughs> do have a choice. When, <laughs> when, when, when they were younger, they were, they were, you know, always out there. That was, you know, one of the key parts of me getting involved in Sea Shepherd was to do something as a family. So, and this you is know, what you chose. Yeah, yeah. And they were out there, you know, with us, you know, cleaning up. But as I get older, they're at uni. They're in the end of high school. They're, they're just studying. They're busy like all they're these kids. kids. They're so busy. You yeah. know, kids are so busy compared to when I grew up in the 80s and we could go out and have fun. They're just busy studying and doing what kids do. And, you know, they've had this whole COVID challenge and there's so many challenges that face them mm. that they just don't have the carefree childhood that we had. Mm. So they come when they can. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're at home supporting us all the time. What's next for Graham Lloyd, superstar of Queensland of the Year. <laughs> Queensland of the Year. What, what, what's happening next? So are you still truck, trucking along with these cleanups or what's the new? Yeah, yeah, can't wait. I'm off with a team of eight volunteers off to Mapoon to work with the Mapoon Land and Sea Rangers to clean up Flinders Beach, which is a 24-kilometre mm. turtle monitoring beach. How long are you waiting for on that one? A week. Just on this, how much time do you spend at home in a year? Do you Not know much? <laughs> Not much. Right. Would you spend half your time away, three quarters of your time? Yeah, uh, probably a quarter of my time away, you know, but there is a lot of planning. Yeah. There. And, and I'm doing the community stuff and I also mm. – do some other volunteering in natural areas when oh, there's a spare minute. Why not? Um, <laughs> we've all got to work together to save the planet. So from Mapoon, we'll go off to Anandiliakwa. So we'll go back to there in the Groot Archipelago. I'm working on a remote in Tiwi Island for later in the year to work with the Tiwi Island Land and Marine Rangers up there to start working in that area. And then we're planning on heading back to Julepan again in October. So it's, it's a super busy program. And then, you know, we also conduct cleanups in the Indian Ocean Territories at Christmas and Cocos Island, which is a little nicer maybe than the areas I work in because you can actually swim there, um, <laughs> which, which was nice when I went there last year. It's still the same problem, you know, different items, but to see these tropical paradises. I was listening to someone talk about Cocos the other day and it said when you're a kid, that was the island you drew, you know, this beautiful island surrounded by palm trees and that's what Cocos is, but it's also covered in plastic. Wow. 
How do people get involved in this sort of shenanigans? Yeah. Uh, they hang around with them. <laughs> <laughs> I just become, you know, go to Sea Shepherd Australia website and there's a section there about how to get involved. So you can either get involved by joining our community cleans or you can get involved as an onshore volunteer. And we're always looking for new onshore volunteers because the more of us, the bigger impact we can have and, you know, get involved in a local chapter, come down and see what it's like. And I guess not everybody can do everything, but all of us can do something is a key thing that one of my good friends always reminds me of. So I think if we all get involved in something we're passionate about that is doing good, that's all we can do. We can only do our best. I say this, I think every time I see you, you do an amazing job. Like it's Jeremy saying before, he's he's in awe of you. I think a lot of people are in awe of you. There was a lot of big uh, names at the uh, Pl- Ocean Plastic Action Forum yesterday. Federal uh, MPs, state MPs, mayors, councillors. Brad Dalrymple is a big deal, apparently. The inventor of the sea bin, uh, a whole bunch of people, scientists, CSIRO, et cetera. Um, all want to speak to Graham. All want to speak to Graham. He's got the hat. He's got the he's got the uh, grey uh, long sleeve shirt, which protects him from the blazing sun where he goes to these locations. And some of the things that you were talking about, you know, bringing it back to, you know, what are you? seeing like i remember one of your standout comments uh and i think it was in response to a question i asked is uh what are you seeing in these cleanups and you were like single-use plastics is a number one bugbear you know the containers the the wrappers the whatever and if we can go a long way towards the dr- minimizing our consumption and production of those things we'll actually readily solve this issue but for you to be there and tell your story telling it real too. telling it real i think a lot of people are like yeah man Rock on Graham Lloyd, basically. Rock on Graham Lloyd. And we can all be doing more. I mean, that's, that's, I think that's what, when, when people do meet Graham, hear Graham's story, I mean, I, I know I do and, and you do, mm. you go, well, join that chapter, get out there, get involved, because it can't be left to one man. Yeah. Or if you can't, and a lot of people can't, we get that, give them money. Yeah. And look, there's a lot of great causes out there. There's a whole bunch of charities, et cetera. And I, I reckon bang for buck, Sea Shepherd Australia yeah. has to be, one of the best things you can do with your donation dollar. And I'd encourage everyone listening to dig your hand in your pocket and just head to the Sea Shepherd Australia website and just throw them, even if it's $5, every dollar goes a long way to help better protecting our oceans and the wonderful life that's within it and above. Graham, I uh, look forward to the next time when we uh, we can sit down after the next conference. I hope you do, hopefully you do come to the next one and talk some real t- turkey because uh, not only professionally it's uh, it's lovely to have you involved, but um, personally it's good to call you a mate and um, we really appreciate you coming on the show today. No, thank you, and we really appreciate the opportunity. And you know, I'd like to just thank everybody that supports us. You know, mm. like it, it does mean the world to us, and our team, our Sea Shepherd Australia team, are amazing. You know, like all our volunteers, there's so many people behind the scenes. I'm lucky they do all the work, they raise the funds, and I'm the one that gets to get to go on the adventure. Um, so <laughs> there is a definitely a huge team behind us. So yeah, I'd like to thank everybody that supports us. Boom, boom, take the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.